Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Our study tonight brings us to chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. And I believe that this chapter brings us to that time in history known as the Tribulation. And so we'll be looking at that tonight. Uh, if you remember from uh, your chart, schedule of events to take place before and after the return of Jesus the Messiah, we saw in chapter 5 of Revelation that John sees a scroll in the hand of God, a scroll sealed with seven seals. And I believe this scroll represents mankind's redemption that we lost, our inheritance that we lost by sin. We're in need of a kinsman redeemer. And John looks and no one is found worthy except the Lamb of God to take the scroll, uh, which represents Jesus redeeming us and restoring to us that lost inheritance. And then in chapter 6 of Revelation, we see the Lamb begins to open the scroll. He begins to break the seals. I believe that represents the future conditions of the world that will lead us up to the seven years of the tribulation. You remember there was the seal of the Antichrist, there was war, and I believe that's the Russian invasion of the Middle East, as spoken over in Ezekiel. There was a seal broken in famine, there's the death of the fourth of the world's population, there are martyrs, uh, Christians are killed, and there's a great cosmic upheaval which could possibly be uh, at least a limited nuclear exchange. And that leads us to the threshold of the tribulation. And then last week we saw in chapter 7 a break in the action. It's kind of an interlude uh, where we are assured that believers will be protected from God's wrath during the time of the tribulation. Uh, and not only will we be protected from God's wrath, but we will be preserved uh, through the tribulation. And then we saw the church purchased through the blood of the Lamb. Now, half of the book of Revelation is devoted to the events of the tribulation. Eleven chapters out of 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, are devoted to events that I believe take place during the tribulation. Now, nowhere in Revelation are we told, okay, the tribulation starts right here. Now, we saw last week that John saw a multitude, and he was asked by the angel, who are these? And he said, well, I don't know, and who are they? And the, uh, the voice told him that they were those who had come through the great tribulation. But it didn't tell us in, when the tribulation takes place as far as the book of Revelation is concerned. Now, I believe that it begins with the blowing of the trumpets of God's wrath, which the seventh seal is that blowing of the trumpets that they began. I believe that's where the time period known as the tribulation takes place. And the events that we have in those chapters, basically chapter 8 through chapter oh, 
Yeah, eight, eleven, eight, eight, chapter nineteen. Uh, till Christ returns, we're talking about the events of the tribulation. And what's interesting is to realize that eleven chapters are devoted to the events of the tribulation, a seven-year period. Yet the marriage of the Lamb, only four verses. Heaven has only two chapters devoted to it. A half a chapter is devoted to the second coming of Christ. The millennial kingdom gets only ten verses. The great white throne of judgment gets only five verses. But the tribulation, seven-year tribulation period gets 11 chapters. I think that's significant. I think it's significant because I believe that the church will be present during the tribulation. And there will definitely be Christians living in the world during the tribulation. And therefore, God wants to give assurance and He wants to give this truth for Christians who will be going through the worst time in human history. And so the book of Revelation devotes 11 chapters to this period of time. Now in chapter 8, we're going to see the preparation in heaven for the tribulation on earth. And then we're going to see the nature of the tribulation. Why? Does God in His plan for human history include a seven-year period known as the tribulation? First, we have the preparation in heaven for the tribulation. I will begin reading verse 1 of chapter 8. And when He broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God... And seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. The angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. All right, let's see what we have here. First, notice that there is silence in heaven for a half an hour. Silence. Dead silence. Now, why is this? There are three possible explanations. First, this silence shows the importance to God of the prayers of the saints. Remember in verse 3, we see the prayers of the saints ascending to God as incense in the tabernacle. Now, let's refer to your diagram of the tabernacle that I have given out. And you will remember that the tabernacle 
and the courts comprised, first of all, you had the brazen altar. That's what you, the front thing you see in the front of your picture. This is where the animals were sacrificed. This is where they were burned. This was a burnt offering. Now, the tabernacle is a picture of how one comes to salvation. Tremendous truth in the tabernacle. We could probably spend six or more weeks just talking about the tabernacle and all the truth that is in the tabernacle. Now, you remember when Moses got ready to build the tabernacle? God gave him specific instructions on exactly how to build it, on the dimensions, on the materials. I mean, nothing was left for him to have to imagine or try to be creative. God put down minute, detailed instructions. Now, why did God do that? Why was God so concerned that it be built exactly like He said? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us because the tabernacle on earth was only a copy, a shadow of the tabernacle in heaven. And so we can learn much spiritual truth from looking at the physical tabernacle because it, again, is a pattern of the tabernacle in heaven. And what we see in chapter 8 of Revelation is we're looking into the heavenly tabernacle. So I want you to understand the earthly tabernacle and then we'll refer, we'll compare it and show you how it fits into chapter 8 of Revelation. All right, then you had the laver. This was for cleansing. First the sacrifice. Then there is the cleansing, the laver, the water. Then there is the going into the holy place, the tabernacle proper. And the tabernacle proper is divided up into two sections. First, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. The holy place had three things inside. There was the altar uh, where the incense was burned, symbolic of prayers. There was the candelabra, golden lampstand, which supplied the light, the windows, the light for the holy place, represented the 12 tribes. And then you had the table of showbread, the loaves of bread, again, symbolic of the tribes. Okay, Then you had this curtain that separated the holy place where a priest would go in and change out the bread and the oil and the lamp and all that, and put the coals in the altar of incense. But that was separated from the holy of holies by a thick curtain. And the holy of holies contained the Ark of the Covenant. And this lid of the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim facing each other. And it was said that God dwelt among His people between the cherubim. Notice there was no natural light in the Holy of Holies. The light was the glory of God that supplied the light. Now, only one person could go into the Holy of Holies, and he could only go one time a year, and that was the high priest. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, when he would sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat uh, 
which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. All right? The Ark was considered so holy that when they got ready to move, this curtain would be taken and the Levites would back toward the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, without looking. And they would drape the curtain over the covenant. And they couldn't touch it. Remember, they had poles. They had circles. And they had poles that they would pick it up and carry it. But they couldn't even put their eyes on it. It was considered so holy, the presence of God. But this is a picture of salvation. You come through the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. We're cleansed. And then we can enter into God's holy place. Now, you remember when Jesus died in the temple, and when the temple was built, the holy place and the holy of holies was moved into the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant was there in the holy of holies. But when Jesus died, you remember what happened to that curtain? It split, and from top to bottom. And the curtain in the temple was as thick as a man's hand, and miraculously split from top to bottom, again saying that we could enter into God's presence. Uh, here's what we have in our passage of Scripture. The idea that the incense going up represents the prayers of the saints. And one interpretation of the silence is that God sees the prayers of His people as so important that all of heaven stops to hear the prayers of God's people. And notice in verse 3 that it is an angel who came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now, the first altar mentioned is this altar of sacrifice, the bronze altar. The next altar, the golden altar, is the altar of incense. So the picture you have, and we'll look at verse 3 again, and another angel came and he stood at the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, the one out in the courtyard, okay? Holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Okay, the angel came. He took coals from this brazen altar, symbolic of the sacrificial death of Jesus, and the coals from this altar would be used to light the incense that would go up as the prayers of God's people. Now, do you see the symbolism behind that? Our prayers are not based on our merit our prayers are based on the blood of Christ, on His death. Just as the coals from the altar of sacrifice are used and brought into the golden altar of incense and used to light the incense. Now, the angel is the mediator here. He's going and presenting you know, the coals, but he's not saying that angels are necessary for our prayers to go to heaven. Our prayers go straight to God. But in some way, it seems perhaps that the angels are servants, and in some way unknown, they may assist our prayers to God's throne. Okay, Our prayers are so important to God that all of heaven stops and waits in silence as God hears the prayers of His people. The shouting host becomes silent. 
The four living creatures become silent. The 24 elders become silent. God holds back the impending judgment upon the world to hear our prayers. You remember when Jesus was with His disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up? And the Scripture says Jesus was asleep during the storm when the waves were were breaking over the boat and the lightning and the thunder and He was asleep. But what woke Him up? The prayers of His disciples. Lord, Lord, don't you care? We're dying here. It was the prayers of His people that woke Him up. That shows us, again, the importance of our prayers to God. So that may be the reason for the silence. There's another explanation, perhaps. Perhaps the silence represents the awe and intense expectation in heaven as God begins these final displays of His judgment and wrath. Now, we can only imagine the unspoken intensity and expectancy of the host of heaven as they think to themselves, what will God do now to bring judgment upon sinful man? How is God, a righteous God, going to vindicate Himself? And all of heaven is mute and motionless with all an expectancy to see what God's going to do. That's another explanation for the silence. The third explanation is the silence is the result of the ominous foreboding of heaven over this great day of God's wrath. It's the calm before the storm. The six seals were bad enough, but nothing like what's coming. And as they anticipate the coming of the awful judgment of God, they hold their breath. The day of grace has ended and the day of judgment and wrath has begun. God is not mocked. So the first aspect of the preparation is that silence. You can take whichever explanation you would like. You can take them all. Uh, I don't know which one fits best. I think there's probably an element of truth in all of them. Now, the second part of the preparation is the prayers of the saints, as we have seen in verses 3 through 5. Before the trumpets are blown, the prayers of the saints are offered. Now, prayers are offered upon the altar of incense. The coals from the altar of fire, the sacrifice used to start the fire in the altar of incense. Again, as we said, symbolic that the sacrificial death of Jesus gives our prayers access to heaven. It is on the basis of His shed blood that we can even go to God in heaven. Remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Since therefore we have confidence to enter the holy place through the blood of Jesus. Nobody could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. But you and I, through the blood of Jesus, can go with confidence into the very presence of God. Now John's telling us that God's judgment is coming as a result of the prayers of the saints. 
You hear that? I believe that the judgment of God that's going to be poured out during the time of the tribulation will be partly a result of the prayers of the saints. Look over in chapter 6, verse 9. We saw this when we were studying that. And when he broke a fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. These are the martyrs. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You remember the phrase, dwell on the earth, refers to the unbelievers. They're crying out, Lord, how much longer must we wait? And they're told just a little bit longer. Well, now with the tribulation, that judgment of God is beginning to be poured out. Over in Psalm 35, we read, Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. In Psalm 83, Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that men may know God rules in Jacob. As I have read the Psalms and you come against the, you come and read these Psalms that are calling for God's vengeance to be poured out uh, on our enemies. Uh, and Psalms was a prayer book and these Psalms seem out of place because we're told to love our enemies and and uh, bless those who persecute us. And yet you read these psalms, and man, David is just praying that there be childless, and man, the kids will be dashed on the stones. I mean, did some hard prayers. What I believe is that those prayers are there to be prayed by the Christians who will be living during the time of tribulation. It will be appropriate at that time for us to pray those prayers that God will pour forth His judgment on all injustice and ungodliness that Christians will be see going on around them. And it is partly an answer to these prayers that the tribulation, the judgment of God, will be poured out on unbelievers. Uh, that's a preparation for the tribulation. Okay? The silence, B, the prayers of the saints. Now, Roman numeral 2, the nature of the tribulation. First, the altar of sacrifice. And that should be A-L-T-A-R. Uh, the angel came to the altar of sacrifice. And what does that represent? Look in verse 5. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar. Which altar is he talking about? The altar of sacrifice. The one out here. When he doesn't say golden, he's talking about this one, okay? And that altar represents the death of Christ, right? It represents Jesus' sacrificial death on behalf of his people. It represents God's judgment, God's righteousness. 
It represents God's holiness as it burns against sin. God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's justice burns against sin. And it represents the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the earthly tabernacle, the sacrifices were only a shadow of the coming death of Christ. We know that. They were a picture. The sacrifices were killed here. Payment had to be made for sin, and the payment was death. God allowed the people to substitute animals in the place of themselves. And you and I know God sent the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Hebrews 10, 12 says, And having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. One sacrifice for sin for all time. The Lord Jesus. So it is to this altar in heaven that the angel comes and he fills his censer with coals from this altar. And what does he do with those coals? He threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The angel from this altar of sacrifice takes coals and casts them out upon the earth. The fire of the tribulation comes from the altar of sacrifice. Now this is very important to grasp this truth. This gives us the nature of the tribulation, the pouring out of God's judgment. To reject the sacrificial death of Jesus and the love of God exemplified through that sacrificial death is to incur His judgment and wrath. The sacrificial death of Jesus, and that's what that altar represents on earth and in heaven, rejected results in experiencing the wrath of God. And so those who will experience the wrath of God are those who have rejected the sacrificial death of Jesus, have rejected the love of God poured out through the death of Jesus, and therefore the angel takes coals from that altar of sacrifice and casts them upon the earth, casting the judgment of God upon those who have rejected the sacrifice of Jesus. Here we see the love-wrath combination. You see, the judgment of God consists of the rejection of His love. All of His graces that He's given. To reject the love of God is to experience the wrath of God. As much as God loves holiness, He hates unholiness. And to reject His payment for the sins of your sins is to experience His judgment. 
The tribulation will be a terrible and horrifying time for those who are rejecting God's love. Let's let the Scriptures speak for a moment. I'm going to just read you some Scriptures that have to do with this time of tribulation. This is what Isaiah says. And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake terribly the earth. Behold, the Lord makes earth empty. He makes it waste. He turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. Therefore has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgressions thereof shall be heavy upon it. And it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. Come, my people, enter thou into my chambers and shut the doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. That's what Isaiah had to say about it. This is what Joel says. The day of the Lord comes for it is near at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess. A day of clouds of thick darkness. Thou has not been Ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. This is what Zephaniah says. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens greatly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole earth shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. And then the Lord Jesus said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And there shall be signs and in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity to see and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now from these passages we see the nature of the tribulation for the unbeliever, for those rejecting Christ will be wrath and judgment and indignation and trouble and destruction and darkness and desolation and overturning and punishment. For those who reject God's love, there will be awful tribulation. But for those who are His, He has 
protected and sealed them from experiencing His wrath. Next week, we shall look at the tribulation from the perspective that Jesus gives us. And we will look at the events that will lead up to the tribulation as Jesus spoke about them for the purpose of trying to help us to understand somewhat of the timetable. And then we will look next week at the purposes of the tribulation. How will God use the tribulation in His redemptive purposes for mankind?